Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about living a graceful life. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to download our app. Our app is available for Android and iOS, and it is a great way to get the content that we put out as a church. You can listen to our sermons, like the one you're listening to now, but you can also watch all of our videos, sermons, and otherwise. It's an easy way to know about all of our events, and you can even watch our services live on our app. And so I hope that you'll consider downloading it if you're consuming our content anyway. You can get it by going to wilsonville.church app. That's wilsonville.church app. Or you can search Creekside Bible Church in the App Store or the Google Play Store, and you'll find it there too. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I hope that it'll help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hey, good morning again. Glad that you guys like each other so much. That's awesome. I am Chad, the lead pastor of this church. I'm glad you're here today. I too am going to talk about Damian Lillard, probably until the playoffs are over. But before I do, I want to iterate how incredible Easter was. We, uh, as was mentioned, we had 100 and uh, close to 175 people, 172 to be exact, that were in attendance, which is incredible. Uh, this month will be the largest average attendance month in. 13 years at our church. I know if you're just coming for the first or second time, you're like, wait, this church is that old, but uh, I, I should let you in on a little secret. This church has almost died twice, and for for me to stand where I stand today, and, and I know for those of you that have been around for, uh, you know, a lot of it, all of it, whatever, um, it's incredible to see the work that God is doing, and and really to understand that God wasn't finished with us even when it looked like this church was finished on more than one occasion. And you're sitting here, and I hope you'll be impacted by God. I mean, we had, I should, this is the more important number from last week. We had somewhere around 10 people raise their hands to commit their lives to Christ or to recommit their lives to Christ. And uh, if you're one of those people, or if you're here and, and you're just blessed in any way by the ministry of this church, just know that, that it's because God kept this thing going and, and he's working and he's He's, he's just done incredible things. And so uh, I just want to say that I'm not very good at celebrating. Uh, it's one of the things I don't do well as a leader. I'm like, uh, and this is only half a joke, but like in the middle of Easter service, I'm thinking like, okay, what are we doing next week? And, and, and what's the next step? And how do we follow up? We have a plan to follow up with you. But like, who do I need to follow up with? And how many cards came in? And like, th- this is just how I'm wired. But I, I did think it was important for me, maybe as much as you, but especially those of us who have been around to say, like, God's doing incredible things. I don't know how many people are here today, but uh, it might be the largest attended month since I've worked at Creekside because I've worked at Creekside a lot longer than I've been the lead pastor at Creekside. And so uh, I just thanks God uh, for the work that you're doing. Um, Last Sunday was good uh, because Easter was great, but also because the Blazers won. And uh, I know that Jesus rose from the grave even if we would have lost last Sunday's game, uh, but it would have felt differently to me. And and so they won on, on Sunday night. It was beautiful. But then on Tuesday, Tuesday, right? It Was it Tuesday? Seems like an eternity to go. Uh, they won the series on Damian Lillard's step back three. If you didn't see it, you're not really an Oregonian. Um, I don't know why you're here, move. Uh, I'm sure they'd love you over there somewhere else. Um, 
But I mean, man, he's standing at that logo. I'm watching it. My kids had just been put to sleep when, when it happened. And thankfully, I have a good wife. And, and she had taken the kids to bed for me. Uh, and, and my brother-in-law and his girlfriend were over, Drew and Hannah. And, and I'm at like, I thought it was over. I thought the season was over when Nurkic broke his leg. But as I'm standing there and we're closing in and it's feeling like, like, this is destiny, and you guys are just wondering what this sermon's about. I promise it'll come all around, but, like, this feels like destiny. Nurkic comes out, the crowd goes crazy, we go on a huge run, and then Damian Lillard is standing at that logo dribbling the basketball. I wish I could palm this better, but he's dribbling the basketball, and I'm just, I'm trying not to yell, but I don't really care if my kids sleep. I actually kind of felt guilty they weren't awake to be a part of it like it was like bad parenting you know and, and I'm I'm like shoot it shoot it shoot it shoot it and then he gets that little here and then there and then he gets the shot up over Paul George and he took by the way I saw a slow motion video of this it's all I did all week if the sermon's bad it's because I just watched the replay over and over and over but he takes seven steps backwards while the ball's still in the air and it felt like an absolute eternity and then it goes in and then and then there's huge fist pumping, and I can't even make this up, but I just leap into the air, into Drew, my brother-in-law's arms, and he's holding me, and we're shaking, and it, it was so, so exciting, and I am so thankful that Damian Lillard is a part of the Portland Trailblazers, and one of the reasons, that's where I'm going to make a big turn here, is because he takes moments that seem like a lot of pressure, right? Like the whole world is watching. Everybody, all of his colleagues, we don't think of them like that, but his teammates, the people that he plays against, every fan, everybody in Oregon is going to be mad at him or happy with him. I mean, it, it's like this, this intense, I think we would, we would assume it's intense pressure, and he, he has an ability to turn them into really beautiful moments. He's taken two pressure-filled moments and, and turned them into two of the greatest moments of my life. I don't know if they're great for him, but they're two of the greatest moments of my entire life. And then I saw this quote this week that I just loved, and it made me want to hug him. I'd hug him right now if he was here. If he ever comes, probably don't hug him because he won't come back, but I will. Somebody asked him about the pressure of the moment. Maybe you saw this going around social media, and he said, pressure? Nah. Fam, this is just playing ball. Pressure is the homeless man who doesn't know where the next meal is coming from. Pressure is the single mom who's trying to scuffle and pay her rent. We get paid a lot of money to play a game. Don't get me wrong, there are challenges. But to call it pressure is almost an insult to regular people. Well, this morning I sit with all of you regular people and, uh, and I do want to talk about pressure because we feel the things that he just mentioned there, do we not? I mean, we'll never know what it's like to shoot a basketball in front of 20,000 people and, you know, the rest of the world that's watching. But we do know what it's like to not be able to pay our bills, to have outside influences constantly telling us what we should do, what we shouldn't do, how we ought to do it, how we need to do it better. We have bosses that, that are saying, hey, get this done and get it done when I say and do it to the level that I expect you to do it without giving us the time to make it happen. I mean, we face an intense amount of pressure. And I think that most of us, we aren't like Damian Lillard in life. Like we don't take those pressure-filled moments and, and turn them into something beautiful, something graceful. It's not like poetry in motion in our lives when those pressure moments come. But I believe that in the book of First Thessalonians, this book that we'll look at in this series, there is 
there is a blueprint really for how we can take the moments in life that we feel pressure, how we can deal with pressure in such a way that it's quite beautiful. It's really elegant. It's, it's good. Uh, early on when I was kind of preparing for this series, I don't know, a month ago or something like that, uh, I was sitting with RJ, who's an elder at our church, and RJ's an engineer, and I was talking about pressure, and then he started to say a bunch of stuff that I didn't understand about the physics of pressure and what it means. He lost me at, like, physics. I was like, what? I did take one day of physics in high school, and they said we'd have to work hard, so I quit. Um, but <laughs> it's a real story, actually. It was my senior year. I was just there to play sports, and he was trying to tell me I was going to have to work hard in anything but sports. But but he, he gave me, he's like, Here, here's what pressure is and then all these words. But I Googled it just uh, the other day when I was studying for this sermon. And, and, and again, I was lost almost immediately. But there's this formula that, that is how we determine how much pressure is on something. Pressure equals force over area. And I thought about this. I knew RJ had said something profound to me, even if I didn't understand it. And uh, I was... Uh, that was not where I wanted that to go. Um, Damien wouldn't have put it there. Uh, but, but I looked this up, and I, and I found it, and I thought, man, that's kind of profound, right? Like, the amount of pressure that we are under in our own lives kind of mirrors this force over area. And, and the force is just the, the amount, right? Like, the weight of what we are dealing with. Like, how many people are telling us that they need our attention, our time, our, our work, our, you know, whatever it might be. And, and the sad reality is that the area is always just us. It's just us. Like, we, we can try to remove some of the force, but we're all, like, we are one life, and, and I think there's some profound things to say, like, be a part of church and have others to help you that can kind of expand that area out. But for the most part, we, if the force comes, it's just bearing its load, does that sound like physics, down on us. Like, it's, it's us who has to deal with it. And, and this series of sermons that we are beginning today is really simply about that. It's about dealing with the pressure that comes through our work and our money and our school and our family and our marriage and our health and our friends and our church and the idea of death even. I think that puts a ton of pressure on people when they're faced with it and doing it in a graceful way. I think that social media has has increased the pressure in our lives because we only see everybody else handling everything so well. We look at people online and it seems like, you know, they have the perfect job. I'm just a little hint. They only post when things are going well, but they seem to have the perfect job and their kids pose perfectly well for Easter photos and you forgot to take a picture. That was us. Uh, and and you, you see their house is always clean and you're like, well, that, my house is never clean. We, this is like, I'm, this is not an illustration, this is me. We can keep about three-fifths of our house clean at all times and the other two-fifths look like an earthquake or a tornado or like whatever natural disaster came through their names are hazel and hudson those natural disasters but but it's like we can keep three-fifths of our house clean and the rest is just a disaster and and everybody else when we look online 
they seem to have it all together and it increases I think the pressure because now we're adding pressure to ourselves to have it all together and to look a certain way and to be a certain way and to deal with things in a certain way and you know what happens you know how this looks in your life most of the time. It's anything but graceful. It's anything but a last second shot. It's more like this. People manage pressure by ignoring it. I know people like that. I've had good friends that just turn on their video games because they don't want to deal with the pressures of their life and they think, well, I'll just hide from it. And I, I think we all know, I think even those people knew that the pressure keeps mounting while we're sitting there in front of our televisions. It doesn't go away, it doesn't get any better, and it's definitely not a graceful, good response. Some people run from it. I mean, they call my generation the, the fatherless generation, and I can tell you there's a lot of pressure as, as a dad. It's, it's a hard thing to do, and my goodness, the first six months or so, it's horrible. It's just an awful experience. You feel pressure in every direction. You have to keep working. You're trying to keep your house clean. You're trying to maintain a good marriage. You're trying to figure out what to do with this little thing that somebody put in your arms. It's an incredible amount of pressure, and, and you know, a lot of men in my generation just ran away from that pressure. They just disappeared. That's not graceful. That's not good. It is a way to deal with pressure. Some medicate it. I would imagine that most people who have any kind of drug addiction, it's because at some point they faced pressure. Uh, maybe, you know, an internal pressure. They didn't feel good enough. They didn't feel like they were living up to expectations or whatever, but they faced some form of pressure and they thought, I'll just... I'll just do something to make me feel better despite the pressure. And, and other people, uh, they just make really poor decisions because of that pressure. I would imagine that most of the corporate crime we read about, most of these things that are really, you know, you just can't believe how would anybody ever, you know, example that's very prevalent right now, how would anybody ever uh, pay, bribe a college to get their child in? Well, they feel pressure. They felt pressure, and so they made a decision that seemed to alleviate the pressure. And it, you know, might land certain people in prison if you've been following that news, but they, they did something, not because they were, you know, worse people or whatever, but because they felt pressure, and we always feel a need to alleviate pressure when it's there, or else, I think this is true, RJ can correct me later, one of our engineers can correct me later. You just explode if you don't deal with pressure somehow. You'll just blow up. I mean, and what that looks like is probably different for other people, yelling at people, doing things that are horrible. You know, we just, if we let pressure build for too long, then it blows up. And so we do these things that are not good in order to try to mix my pressure metaphors, you know, give a little bit of a release valve to release some of that pressure. Um, before we go further, let me just say that, that there's good news. I'm not going to give you a definition of a graceful life in this series because I think that a graceful life looks different for everybody. But I think it's a life that lives for God that, that is beautiful despite the amount of force that is put on top of us as people. It's a beautiful life. It's a life that succeeds. It's a life that makes right choices. It's a right that stays in the moment and does the right thing even when it's hard. 
And in 1 Thessalonians, this is so, this is so great, there's this, this word. Uh, it's a word that, that isn't always translated as pressure, but it is. It's this Greek word, thlipsis, and it means pressure or compression or straightness, hence pressure from evils, affliction, or distress. It's a word that means pressure, and, and the book of First Thessalonians is in large part written to this church, for this church, that is facing an intense amount of pressure. They're new Christians. Let me just tell you about their pressure. I know it'll be different than yours, but they are new Christians who are facing intense persecution because of their newfound Christianity. I mean, they have just placed their faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and people in their city are really against that idea, and so they are are hurting them. They're yelling at them. They're threatening their livelihoods to try to get them to back out, to do something different, to no longer be Christians. It's intense pressure. And yet, as we'll discover, this is so awesome, this church is living gracefully despite this pressure. And over the next four Sundays after today, today, counting today five, we're going to look at the things that they got right in order to make that happen. And here's how the book begins, 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. It's a pretty simple greeting, but there's a couple of interesting things. I won't spend too much time talking about it, but but it is interesting. The, The greeting is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who were the missionaries that got this church going off the ground. They are the ones that started this church by showing up in Thessalonica, the city, and preaching about Jesus. And so they desperately care about these people. They desperately care for them. They want to see them succeed. The church is under intense pressure but they are living well and there's this key little phrase this little word that's different than most of Paul's other greetings to churches like in Colossians or Galatians those are also letters written by Paul to churches there's this little subtle difference he doesn't say the church in Thessalonica where he would have said like the church in Colossae he doesn't say the church in Thessalonica he says the church of the Thessalonians in God. For Paul, this is, this is a big phrase because it's a reminder of something very important. Most of the time when Paul says it, he says, in Christ. But the idea here seems to be the same. He is talking about the position that we have if we have placed our faith in Jesus. Our lives Our hopes, our dreams, our successes, even the struggles that we face are to be done within the confines of knowing that our lives are hidden in Christ. We were, as we celebrated in baptism last week, buried with him in his death, raised to life with him in his resurrection. And now in some relational way, we are hidden in him, in God. And I think it's a clue right at the very beginning for why this church was able to succeed under intense pressure, why they were able to live gracefully despite the pressure that they were facing. And it's they had lived in light of their relationship to God. They had lived as though they were in Christ, which they were. I think that when pressure builds, one of the quickest things that we do is we 
place God on the back burner. I think that a lot of you think like I would work more on my relationship with God if there was less pressure on me in these other areas. But one of the, one of the great things that this church does is they are living in light of their relationship with God. What I think it kind of does is it spreads out that pressure, right? Because if we're in Christ, it's like Christ is, has put himself above us and on top of us, and now the force comes down on him more than it comes down on us. But we get it so backwards. I'll focus on my relationship with God if and when the pressure of work and kids and you know, school and money and everything else, once that goes away, then I'll live as though I'm in Christ. And this church, facing the pressure, is doing it well because they are living in God, in Christ, while the pressure is mounting. I love that. Paul continues, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your Listen to these next three phrases, because if there's a definition to a graceful life, it's this. We remember, before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love are often linked together in the New Testament is kind of the big three attributes of a Christian, the big three things that, that our Christian faith should be producing. John Calvin went as far as to say that these are a brief definition of true Christianity. John Bangle, who wrote commentaries on the New Testament, said, in these, the whole of Christianity consists. We have faith towards God, we have love towards others, and we have hope towards eternity and these are the, perhaps the three defining elements of a graceful life. Next three sermons after this will be on how these were lived out in this church in Thessalonica. And so next week, the week after, and the week after, we'll talk about those individually. But it's important here that we pay attention to these incredible three phrases. Work produced by faith, labor, labor prompted by love. Endurance inspired by hope. Doesn't that sound like graceful living? I mean, oftentimes I think when we face pressure, we think of, I don't know, gritting it out or working harder and just kind of bearing up. We picture like, I don't know, an offensive lineman or whatever. Like that's, that's how we handle pressure. Like I'll just try to run through it or run over it or deal with it in any way I can by the sweat of my brow. I'll pull up my bootstraps and I'll get this thing done. But the motivation behind our work and our labor and our endurance, the motivations behind those things are what make them graceful. I mean, you can work and you can labor and you can endure and not be graceful at all, right? Not beautiful. You can kind of get the job done. It's not poetry in motion. It's not Damien Lillard. It's, it's, it can happen. It can work. You can keep working. You can keep striving. You can keep fighting. But don't we want something that's just a little more beautiful than kind of brute force? And we live gracefully when, when the motivators are faith, love, and hope. The motivation behind our work, labor, and endurance 
determines whether, whether our lives can be described as gritty or graceful. It's the motivation behind our work and our endurance and our labor that determines whether our lives are simply gritty or, or whether or not they are, they're graceful. I think of it like, like ballet, and you saw that in the video. Most of you weren't paying attention, so maybe you didn't. But, uh, but kind of when we, when we were looking to do this series, I mean, the idea of ballet just was kind of at the forefront of what this looks like. Because uh, this picture, I think, just does such a good job of defining uh, just ballet, right? That's hard. I can't do it. I don't even know. It seems hard because I'm not even close to being able to do it. But it seems like it would hurt a lot. It seems like you would spend years of struggling and practicing and fighting to get to this point. I, as I Googled the difficulty of ballet, I was amazed at, at how much people talk about how it's kind of bad for children that really push into it because they have to work so hard. And I also was amazed at how much people talk about the injuries that are sustained through ballet. It's like a, you get injured a lot, I guess, when you do ballet. I happen to watch this I have no idea why I watched this, but maybe because my daughter is doing some ballet right now, and um, and so I, I saw this thing that said like what this ballerina eats in a day or something like this. It's weird because she ate terribly, like she ate a bunch of microwave meals, uh, but she had to eat a lot of calories. That was kind of the point in order to sustain kind of the work. But the thing that that really I remember the most besides microwave meals was that she stretched for two hours a day. She stretched for two hours a day. If I go down and try to touch my toes once, I'm like, hey, I did something today, you know, but which I don't get there. But when I try, it's like, hey, I stretched. She stretches for two hours a day. And what kind of strikes me about ballet more than basketball, more than football, is that, that the end goal is this really beautiful, artistic, graceful thing. Other sports, you know, brute force becomes the goal at certain times. You want to run a guy over. You want to go faster than the other person and just get past them. I mean, but ballet is all of that grit and that grind and that struggle. But with the goal of something beautiful, artistic. I think that when we have work that is produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. It moves us from just grit and grind into something that is beautiful. And that's what we're gonna explore more in this series. Because don't we want a life that is that people can look at and just go, wow, and I hope that's not the motivation, but you want to live in such a way that other people are like, how do they deal with all that pressure? and yet seem to live so beautifully. Paul continues, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. This is the motivation behind the motivation of faith, hope, and love. These people embraced and accepted the gospel as true. And this means, and I love this, that they are, they are chosen. They're chosen. Now that word can be really controversial when we read it in the Bible, but let me just 
take away all the controversy and just say this. If you have given your life to Jesus because you believe that he is the savior of the world, then you can be for darn sure that you are chosen by God. No question. You are chosen. This takes the pressure off. You don't have to live gracefully in order to to be on God's team. You live gracefully because you want to glorify God, not in order to earn his favor, not in order to be chosen. I mean, the, the analogy of sports is so easy, right? When your coach looks at you and says, I absolutely trust you with this shot, and if you miss this shot, that's fine. I'll trust you with this shot next time because I know who you are. I know what I think about you. I know the quality of your play. Then you take that shot with much less riding on it than the person who shows up at a tryout who's done a tryout of any kind before and you're like coming to this tryout and you're thinking wow if I miss the shot then I might not be on this team at all I might not be on this team at all I experienced this playing college baseball the difference between knowing I had a starting spot and working to get that starting spot changes everything in the way that you approach things and when you know, when you know I belong on this field, I'm not going to get cut, I'll still have my spot tomorrow, you just put up a shot, you take a swing, and you go, hey, I hope it's going to go well, but if it doesn't, I'm going to be okay. And this is the reality with God. We believe in, in this thing called the gospel as Christians, that Jesus came down from heaven to earth because of your sin. He lived sinlessly. He lived perfectly. He lived without doing anything wrong. And at the end of that life, he died for our sins. And he came back to life three days later. And he said, anybody that will place their faith in me, that will call me Lord and King, that will give me their life, they can be on my team. They don't have to worry about earning it. They don't have to worry about doing it better. They don't have to worry about, you know, if they're doing enough things right. They're on my team for eternity. They get to go to heaven. The outcome is sure. And man, when you remember that, when you live in light of that, when you know that you are chosen, you make that jump, you take that shot, you make your swing, and you do it, not worrying about the end result. We're going to win. Just do it for the glory of God who has already saved you. That's a difference maker. I'm not worried about whether I get to heaven or not. I'm going. There's still pressure. Things are still hard. I still want to succeed. I still want to live beautifully. And I'll take my shot knowing that in the end, I'll end up with Jesus in eternity. This gospel came to them with power and words and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Paul was sure of their salvation. Because of this, they were living gracefully. In the next two verses, it says, you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now here's the deal. There's two things that are so important. He says, you imitated us and Jesus, and therefore you became a model to others. I think it's really important that you find somebody, a Christian. If you're a Christian that wants to live gracefully, you need to find another Christian that you can imitate your life after. 
We have produced devotional booklets. I should have brought one up on stage with me, but I'll hand them to you at the door when you leave if you didn't get one last week. And it's a different kind of devotional booklet than anything we've ever done before because there's there's not a lot of devotional material. Uh, Every day simply has one single action that we think will help you in your quest to live more gracefully. It's totally action driven. And one of those things, and I hope you'll take this seriously, is to invite somebody to coffee that you think lives a life worth imitating. I think that when we look at others and we can say, look, they've faced these pressures, they've dealt with these things, and and look how they've done it. It's beautiful. I'm going to sit with them. I'm going to talk with them. I'm going to try to be like them. It's helpful. He says that they imitated Jesus too, and we should be aiming to to imitate Jesus. I mean, we who are my age and older can remember the WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? That's a great sentiment for life. But sometimes when your kid's screaming, you're like, I don't know how Jesus would handle this. But what what did they do? These people who I know are aiming to live like Jesus and are doing it pretty effectively. What did they do? Because I think we're all shooting to be models, right? We all want to be models, how to live life. And we become models for other people to follow when we imitate somebody else that's already gone through the same pressures that we face. Find somebody. There's people for me at different age stages that have similarities in their families. Some of you out in front of me, I won't embarrass you by saying your names, but I look at them and say, if I can be like them when I get to that age, if I can be doing it like they've done it, if my kids have that kind of respect for me when they've grown up, if I, if I, could, if I could be in their financial situation, if I, could, if I could be that kind and that servant-hearted and all those things, if I could be like that, then I've done pretty good. So what are the steps I need to take to do it like they've done it? To live under pressure like they have lived under pressure. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10, it's the end of our verses They say, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son, Jesus, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. There's three really key, important action words here. It pretty much defines the gospel. It's what makes it so that their faith in the gospel, it defines our response to the gospel, let me say. It's the thing that makes it so that their faith has become known everywhere. And don't you, if you're a Christian, then you should want people to be able to look at your life and say, I absolutely know that those people have a true faith. They may not believe what you believe, but they know that you believe it because of the way you live your life. I hope, I pray that we would become a church that people can look at us as a congregation and say, man, those people, they have faith. And here's the three actions. They turned to God from idols. 
I mean, this is part of living as a Christian. We turn away from these things that we worship, that we live for. But I think that all a lot of us do not handle pressure well because we still live for the idols. We don't live for little stone things. We live for our money, and we live to have the perfect family, and we live for a bigger following online, and we live for a greater influence. We live in order to look good, to have a nice car. We live to be successful in our jobs. And I'm telling you that if you don't turn from those things, then the pressure will just keep mounting idols are a they are a heavy taskmaster when you're living for anything that's not Jesus it puts an incredible amount of pressure on you to keep getting better to keep doing more to keep trying harder until you turn really not just in mind not just like kind of yeah I could live for Jesus but like unless you turn and you really start to live for God and you stop living for fill in the blank then you will not handle pressure very well. If you're living for work, if you're even living for your, some good things like your children or for your spouse, if you're living for more stuff, if you're living for more popularity, if you're living to make people like you, then you will not live gracefully when pressure comes. But you might if you live for God. They turned from idols and they served the living and true God. That should be the aim of your life. And here's the great thing about having a life that's centered around, that's driven by living for God, is that these pressures that we face no longer become important. You, I hate, I hate telling you this, but you can live for God the same when you have a lot of money or a little money or not enough money. You can live for God just the same, whether people like you or don't like you. You can live for God just the same, whether work is going well or not going well. And if your goal, your 100%, the 100% aim of your life is serving God, then your circumstances become far less important. And you can live gracefully no matter what pressure is coming at you or being put on you. And then it says, and I love this, you wait for his son from heaven. We raised from the dead. This is the story of the resurrection that we celebrated last week. Jesus came back to life, lived a while, went up into heaven. And if we're going to live gracefully, then we need to wait for him. Now, I know there's some fear in this. You've probably met people. What do they say? I said this in a sermon a couple weeks ago. I should write it down because I didn't write it down last time. But uh, they're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Have you ever heard that saying before? And, and you've maybe met people like that, that they just, you know, it's like they live in the clouds because they're focused on heaven. But the reality is most of us never think about heaven at all. We never think about the fact that Jesus will come back and he'll either take us to be with him when we die or he'll come back and he'll take many to be with him at his return. And I know from personal experience that those who long to see Jesus the most are the people who live for him the best. They live the most gracefully. We need to long for Jesus, to wait for Jesus. It doesn't mean we like sit down and do nothing all day. It just means we need to say, Jesus, I know you're coming back and I'm excited about it. I'm waiting for you. Because if we'll do that, then we will begin to live gracefully. There's this uh, wonderful uh, kind of mirror thing that Paul does here. I, we talked about faith, we talked about love, and we talked about hope. And then Paul, in these three action words, turn and serve and wait, he mirrors those. We turn from idols, that's faith. 
We place our faith in Jesus, not the things of the world, not the money that we have, not how much people like us, not our popularity. We serve God in love. That's how we serve God. We love people. We love him. We serve him. And then we wait for Jesus. That's hope. And this morning, before we dive deeper over the next several weeks, it's important that you say, okay, where am I at as far as my faith, love, and hope? And the answer is, how much are you living for God or other things? And the answer is, in, in how much are you waiting for Jesus to come and get you? It all boils down to this one simple thing. A graceful life is a gospel life. When the gospel, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is the very center of all that you do and all that you are, when you are in God and living like you are in God, then you can live gracefully no matter, no matter what pressure you might face. If you're already in God, you're chosen. You can have faith, hope, and love. You should turn from idols to start, start serving God and waiting for Jesus. It's simply this. You need to live a life that is centered around the gospel because a graceful life is a gospel-driven life. That's the reality. And this morning, I'll just pose the question. I'll just end with this question. Is your life centered on the gospel? Like, Really? Not do I call myself a Christian, not, you know, do I kind of have a Christian morality, but is, is your life, the decisions you make, how you spend your time, the things that you do, is it centered on the gospel? Maybe some of you have come here this morning and you're not Christians at all. You need to become a Christian if you're going to live gracefully. And maybe others of you, you've called yourself a Christian forever, but when you really examine your life, it is not centered on the gospel. And this morning, man, you've got to make a change if you want to live gracefully because a life centered on the gospel will become a graceful life. Let me pray that that will happen. Lord Jesus, I know I'm guilty, Lord, of serving my idols of doing so many things, God, that, that are not driven by you, by what you would have for me, by what you would want for me, God. Um, living life in such a way, God, that I look just like everybody else, Lord, that, that doesn't love you and doesn't serve you. And I'm sorry for that. But this morning, God, I pray for me, for all of us, that this would be a moment where we, where we really pose the question, am I living a gospel-driven life? And God, we, you would reveal that answer to us. And if the answer is no, I pray, God, that everybody here, everybody who's listening online, that they would make a decision, God, this day, this morning, to say, I'm going to recenter or for the first time center my life around the gospel. Lord, you've, you've done this incredible thing for us where you, you've changed us from your enemies into your chosen ones, from your enemies into your family, from your enemies, God, into your priests, your holy nation, your royal priesthood, all of those great things, Lord. And until we live in light of that, we will not live gracefully. The pressure will mount and we'll hide, we'll run, we'll make bad decisions, we'll medicate, God, we'll do a bunch of things, but we will not live gracefully. And so I pray, God, draw us to make decisions today to center our lives around your gospel to live in you, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.